And welcome back to the Illuminations Media Network. I'm Tamara, your host, and I'm so glad you're back here with me for another very exciting interview. Well, I have Paul Wallace back with me, and I am just super excited. I'm actually giddy today. Um, if you remember, it's been about almost a year to the day when we interviewed Paul about his Escaping from Eden book. It was May 24th, 2020, right in that crazy year in the midst of it all. Well, here we are. It's a year from then, just a few days shy. And Paul has another book. This addictive writer, Paul, you have written another book called Scars of Eden. I'd just like to welcome you back and please say hello to the family and then we're going to jump right in. Oh, Tamara, thanks so much for having me on your show again. I really enjoyed our last conversation. And uh, I'm sure for both of us, so much has happened in the years since. And in my case, it's resulted in, in the next book. So the journey continues. Doesn't it? You know, I'm, I've gotten so many uh, wonderful reviews about our interview. Um, right there, many comments. Now, of course, you can imagine, you know, you have shaken loose <laughs> a lot of people's very cherished beliefs and ideas about the scriptures and why we're here and who God is and, and, and all of that. And so there were a few of those, you know, people who are a little concerned, who are a little worried about uh, their spirituality and mine and yours. <laughs> of course. Um, but then there were also the ones that were, you know, very, very congratulatory, very appreciative, you know, for your bravery and stepping up, especially with your background, you know, as a minister, as, as someone who is, who's done a great deal of training and also teaching and the whole idea of deciphering those, deciphering those holy scriptures. And, uh, but one of them really jumped out at me and I think um, maybe you can, you can help us with this and we can begin the interview. Um, his concern was if these ETs, these extraterrestrial interdimensional beings who, who came here and if they terraformed, if they altered our DNA, whatever they did, um, why the heck would they be interested with us? <laughs> and, I, and I just thought that you could probably supply a really clear and definitive answer on that. Why would they want to mess with us? <laughs> it is a very good question. And I'm sure there is more than a single answer to that question. But if we go back to the bigger question of where did we come from? And where did they, our visitors come from? I favor the theory that's called panspermia which is held to, is championed by some very eminent scholars and scientists from Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the double helix of DNA, to a contemporary expert in the same field, Maxim Makukov of the Fezenkov Astrophysical Institute. And if people are unfamiliar, what panspermia says is, is the theory that life is the norm in the cosmos, not the exception. And that the genetic coding for biological intelligent life has actually seeded either the entire cosmos or at least this corner of the cosmos. And that whenever that genetic coding lands in a hospitable environment, it will result in forms of life similar to the ones that we're familiar with on planet Earth. 
And that means that our interstellar neighbors uh, may be somewhat similar to us. But of course, every planet is slightly different. Every niche is slightly different. The genetic coding may have landed on that planet billions of years before it landed on this planet. And so it will give rise to a spectrum of life forms. And it's very possible that though we may all be related, there's still something unique about what happened on planet Earth. And I think that that is the reason for some of the interest that we have from some of our visitors. If I start somewhere else, if I start in the scriptures, if I go to Genesis 6, that's where most Bible readers come across their first uh, abduction narrative. Genesis 6 says that the Bene Elohim saw that the daughters of men, the human females, were very attractive. And they said, let's have some of that in our gene pool. They find human beings, the females in particular, very attractive. And that could be for all kinds of reasons. It may be that some of our intergalactic neighbors lack the robust physicality that we have. And they want some of that in their gene pool. It may be that some of our neighbors lack the creativity, the emotionality that we have as human beings. And they think our lives look more fun and more interesting than theirs. I actually believe that's something that makes us attractive. I think that there is a unique cocktail here on planet Earth. When we come to Homo sapiens, we have animal strength, mammal emotionality, and all the subtle instincts that come from that heritage. And we have some higher consciousness that comes from our ET heritage. That's what I argue in Escaping from Eden. And it's made for, I think, a very wonderful, beautiful species with potential for awfulness on the one hand, but amazingly loving, compassionate, creative, exciting lives at the same time. And I think that's part of what makes us attractive. But as I've listened to ancestral narratives around the world, I think there's a spectrum of reasons why others might have an interest in planet Earth. And some may be here for those rather flattering reasons, and others might regard us as crops. Uh, others might be totally uninterested in us. They're here for the minerals or, or something else to do with the properties of the planet. And so the more I've listened to the ancestral narratives of cultures all around the world, the more I think there's a diversity of reasons why our neighbors would have an interest in us. And after all, if we had the same spacefaring capacity wouldn't we be interested in our neighbors at some level or another? So I don't find it surprising that we would attract cosmic attention. Right. Yeah, I, I think we're quite interesting <laughs> myself. <laughs> <laughs> As a hypnotherapist, I, I definitely work every day with the mind, the mental capacities, the, the emoting powers of human. And, uh, and, and we are quite powerful in that, you know, even looking at the universal laws, you know, the, the power of emotion and, and creation. And uh, oh, yes. just in our, our little lives, our day-to-day -day experiences, those emotions are very powerful. And, and of course, we're learning about the electromagnetic frequencies, you know, that emit from our, our brains and our hearts and the power in that. Yes. You know, and that's, and that's quite fascinating. Yeah. 
True. And if we go to the even bigger picture suggested by Plato, for instance, that the material universe is here in order to host consciousness, that was what he said two and a half thousand years ago, panspermia puts the nuts and bolts on that. If that's the case, then obviously Homo sapiens carries consciousness in a very particular and unique way. And so, of course, that's going to be of interest to the grand cosmic experiment that we're all a part of. It is a definitely uh, an experiment. And, and, you know, just thinking about that, it, it makes me uh, picture the whole galactic uh, federation of Star Trek, right? <laughs> you have yes. all these different species that have come together. And, uh, of course, they have their prime directive in order. Um, and everyone looks very different from one another. Um, for the most part, they're very cooperative with one another. And uh, it looks like we are actually moving into that. You know, there seems to be uh, a lot of movement to uh, break away civilizations, you know, where people are going to Mars on a one-way trip now. You know, there are these, these plans, oh, these technologies that are taking place. I think, I think that's fascinating and, and extremely exciting. You know, if we, could, if we could actually become a part of that, that would be really amazing. Absolutely. Star Trek is a great, um, I, I love Star Trek. I was an addictive viewer of the original series when I was uh, a young boy. And really, all the Star Trek stories are asking the great question, can we live, can we do consciousness and intelligence and harmony as an array of entities exercising free choice? That was the great question that the series posed. And I love that it proposed a couple of different models of harmony and order. And one was the United Federation of Planets, where we're all different, but we found a way to coexist and learn from one another. So we're all part of this great learning. And then the other model was the Borg, where everything gets unified and shut down. Right. And that sort of, that mirrors the great struggle that we experience on planet Earth, because on this planet, we're asking, can we live intelligently, consciously, harmoniously on this planet? And you sort of got those different models of society and order duking it out uh, while we watch, so to speak. So I find Star Trek interesting for that reason. It's even more topical in 2021 because it was just before Christmas that Haim Ashed Israel's former chief of space security came out and said, now he's a brigadier general who held that position for 27 years, very credible figure indeed, came out, went to the press and said that on the basis of his experience, his understanding is that there is an intergalactic federation that is in contact with us at covert government levels and has chosen not to self-disclose. So, hey, Emma Shared is saying, the Star Trek world is actually real. It's already we here. Have just, we've not been informed. That's, <laughs> that's the position. And for somebody of his standing to come out and say that really is quite startling. But anyone who reads world mythology or ancestral narratives will be nodding their heads saying, yes, I think I'd work that out. <laughs> and, and yes, we're ready. We're, we're definitely ready. <laughs> yeah. Well, we need. We need to be ready. Uh, we need to be part of that conversation, as you were saying, Tamara. And it was very much part of 
the message of Ed Mitchell, the, the late Ed Mitchell, the sixth man to walk on the moon, that he believed we need, as a species, as a spacefaring civilization, to be at that table, to be part of the Intergalactic Federation, to know who our friends are on that table, and yes. to be able to say, this is our planet, we live here, these are our aspirations, and we are now taking part in this conversation. And we can't get there while there is such a taboo around the whole topic of our place in the cosmos and where there is this level of classification that's uh, still in place. We may see a shift later in the year. We've got the Senate briefings. I'm not sure what those will bring, but it will certainly be an interesting year on this topic. It certainly has. Well, well, Paul, you and I both know, I mean, clearly from our conversation, we both uh, agree that this is a reality. Um, and, I, and I recognize those who are viewing and listening, um, please, you need to go and watch the previous uh, interview from a year ago um, about escaping from Eden. It gives more of the nuts and bolts. We have advanced a little bit further, <laughs> but, but I just want to digress just a wee bit. Um, that a lot of people are, are really, really fearful. Um, we're still looking at the, the tangible physical body, you know, the, the people still dealing with religiosity um, and the recognition that what does this mean, you know, about God? What does this mean about who God is, you know, just to, to, mm. to look at maybe there have been many different species who've been here, who've come here you know, who have maybe marked us. The different races were marked by different species so that we look like them. Maybe there was a, you know, the Nordics, maybe they marked the blonde, blue-eyed people of the North. You know, maybe there were some others who were Africoid or Negroid who, who marked the black people and so on. Um, we we kind of see that that is a, a huge possibility from history, carving in stones, you know, uh, from, from narratives of, of people around the globe of their experiences. But, but for people, what does that, where does that fit with, with God and, and the creator of the universe? You know, we don't want to worship a man, a, a flesh and blood being who may be advanced, but what about the true creator? Yes. Well, one of the reasons why I knew I had to write The Scars of Eden was because with Escaping from Eden, I'd taken people into territory where they were wrestling with exactly those questions. Um, escaping from Eden ends with me beginning to wrestle with the implications. What, what are the implications for my relationship with Jesus, my sense of connection with God? Where, where do we go from here? And so The Scars of Eden really holds the hand of the reader as they wrestle that wrestle. And something that helped me and surprised me in the process was to realize that the ideas I was putting forward, namely that our ancestors were visited by extraterrestrials and genetically modified by them, was actually part of mainstream Christian conversation right in the beginning of Christianity that there were very significant church fathers who believed exactly that. People like Clement of Alexandria, uh, Justin Martyr, Origen, Marcion. That's what they believed. And so I then wondered, well, how did they square that with their belief in God? And the answer really comes from 
Plato. They had all read Plato. They'd read his explanations of the origins of the cosmos and the origins of Homo sapiens. And they reckoned he'd got it right. Plato had pulled together information from all around the world and had really analyzed it on the basis of what we could call science, reason, logic applied to things we can all observe. And then he had a couple of other sources as well that he talked about in his books. But he believed in God and he told us what he meant by God. He, he meant the cosmic source the uncreated from which creation proceeds, the source of the cosmos and everything in it, which he believed was, to use more modern language, a, a, a unified field of consciousness. And that the material universe had emanated from that. And that all intelligence and all consciousness came from that source, that zero point. He talks about God in those terms, and then he talks about neighbors who intervene in the progress of life on Earth. And it echoes. It echoes how the Apostle Paul defined God. And when Paul went to Greece and he had to clarify what he meant by the word God because his audience wasn't versed in his Judaism, right. he had to start from scratch. He yes. said, okay, by God I mean the source of the cosmos and everything in it, that in which we all live and move and have our being. And when Paul did that, he did humanity a huge favor because he not only said that, he unpacked the implications of it. And that is there's no separation between you and me and God. We are all intimately connected with one another and with the source. Our consciousness emanates from the source consciousness, our intelligence from the source intelligence. We live and move and have our being in the source. And so the whole idea of us being separated from God and needing to appease God or needing to serve God goes out the window. And Paul explains that to his Greek audience. He mocks the idea that the source of the cosmos needs anything from us. He doesn't need us to serve him because God is the source of all things. So Paul explains this. And I, I love that because it absolutely pulls away the foundations of a lot of religiosity that is built on fear, fear of separation, fear of hell, fear of divine disapproval, fear of divine retribution, And as I began to realize that's the roots of Christianity, and as I realized that was the teaching of Jesus as I reframed it, I mean, to go to the Jesus equivalent of that Paul moment, you go to the first sermon he ever preached. And if you look at the root meanings of the words, this is, I can't help myself, I'm a linguist. Whenever I go to a text, my question is always, what do the words mean? Yes. And so you go to some of these familiar texts, If you're willing to peel back all the cultural layers we've, we've layered on top, all the traditional religious readings we've layered on top, and just go to the root meanings of the words, Matthew tells us what Jesus's message was that he toured with in his first preaching tour. And his message was that the amazing power of the source is available to all of us. That was his sermon. He toured with it and then he demonstrated what that looked like in terms of healing, 
freedom, entity removal, living without fear. And so he gave us case studies in what it means to be happily enjoying our union with the source and moving in the power of that. Now, when you put that together, it reframes your faith. It reframes your understanding of God. Your vision of God becomes more cosmic. Your understanding of Jesus becomes far more positive and open as to what he was seeking to do with this. And um, I'll say something provocative because, frankly, this, this is where it leads. I was listening. I love listening to the Christian radio station uh, here when I'm driving. And a lot of the music I really love. When I became a Christian, I got very into the music of Vineyard. And the Vineyard music at the time, what was distinctive about it was the songs were all about enjoying our connection with God. And it was a connection of love. And uh, so the songs had a very wonderful vibe and feeling to them. And I loved singing them. But from time to time, I hear another strand of theology coming through in the songs I hear. And I heard a song that was saying, um, um, it was saying, please forgive me if I've offended you. I will serve you. I will serve you all my life. I'll serve you to my last breath. Just please forgive me if I offend you. Please have mercy on me. And I can listen to that as a Christian uh, with all the familiarity I've built up and say, oh, what a lovely devotional song. Now I listen to it and I think, what kind of relationship is that? <laughs> is that a relationship with a God of love that please don't kill me, cringing kind of relationship? We have normalized that kind of language have we not? in the churches. We mm. stop noticing that that's a horrible relationship. And in the reframing I've done, I've realized that's not rooted in how Jesus presented himself, how Jesus taught. It's not rooted in an understanding of who God really is. You can go to Jesus, you can go to the Apostle Paul, you can go to Plato, and there is this far more empowering picture of love and wisdom and consciousness in which we can all enjoy moving if we can get our heads, heads out of the old paradigms and begin to live in the light of these things. Now, Paul, that deep root there, the, the one you've peeled back the banana, so to speak, peeled back the cultural connotations, the, the need for domination and control, you know, through the use of religion. How did they change it? How did they flip the switch on Paul's purity? Yeshua's purity in translation. They did this. Yes. Um, yes. It's a really multi-layered question. Um, the story of the formation of the Bible is really fascinating and, and answers some of that question. In Christianity, of course, a lot got distorted as the empire began to play a role in Christianity. And then if you can... If you can think in terms of that at the beginning, Christianity was a kaleidoscope of theologies and ideas and documents. And then there's a gradual process of, of narrowing down. That 
reflects choices that had to be made in terms of what books to include, what books to exclude, how to translate this, how to translate that. And by the time you get to the end of the fourth century, the empire is very, very heavily involved in that process. If Christianity is a feudal religion with the people at the bottom and then tiers of clergy on the top, that is a structure that empire finds very convenient. And what the empire did was to look at Christianity and say, we are going to give your leaders rank in the empire. We're going to put all your senior pastors in purple. They're going to have senatorial rank. Now, in the first instance, that looks like a huge compliment. Wow, look at how the empire is affirming us. They've put our leaders in purple. <laughs> uh, what they've actually done is they brought the church into the feudal structure of the empire so that the pastors are now here, the emperor's here, and you're down here. And in 381, the emperor Theodosius waded into a theological uh, debate and he settled it with a stroke of the imperial pen. And what that did was anchor all that to show the emperors at the top defining what's true and what's false. And under the emperor are the bishops and under the bishops are the people. And now being a good Christian means being a good, obedient citizen. So you can certainly see that process happening through the history of Christianity. And when that happened, it meant that all these other views were not only uh, non-Orthodox, they began to be viewed as non-Christian. And that if you, were, if you were teaching them, you were attacking the unity of the church and you were attacking the unity of the empire. And that's why texts like the Gnostic Gospels were physically buried and hidden to protect them from being completely destroyed. So that's one way in which it gets distorted. I think, though, we're hardwired um, to serve superiors. That's what our ancestors say when they talk about our origins as a species. You go to the Mayan story of origins uh, in the Popol Vuh, and it says those who engineer, the visitors came, and from, it looks like, from a primate ancestor, they engineered a species who would, what was the phrase, work for us and bring us our food. And so they hardwired us to serve superiors. And then in the Sumerian stories, there were conversations among the sky people saying, if we can frame their work as worship, as something religious, worship. they'll actually count it. A, yeah. They'll count it worship. That's right. They will count it as a virtue to serve us. And so they really were trying to get a species that would be, you know, good slaves, good servants. And in the Popol Vuh, it says they had a really tough go at getting there and that finally they produced something that well at some point they produced something that was like a gorilla if you can imagine engineering a gorilla and then finding it's not willing to work for you and bring you your food it was that kind of gaffe they were making then they made homo sapiens it was too smart and couldn't be managed and so they had to dumb us down to the point where we could be managed all these stories tell us that there is hard wiring in us to please superiors and so when you come back to Jesus and the Apostle Paul and you hear the Apostle Paul mocking the idea of sacrificial religion, or you come back to Jesus saying, you have no superiors, call no one on earth your leader. You are all peers, you're all brothers and sisters. You then begin to see the, the importance of that. Jesus said he didn't want to see 
us human beings living in this stratified society of tiers of authority and importance and obedience, he said, you're all brothers and sisters. And that was his vision for humanity. And so I've begun to see the teachings through a different grid that were left to us by Jesus and Paul and begin to see, oh, this interpretation has come from empire. This interpretation has come from our hard wiring to serve superiors, but it's not actually in the words themselves when I read them. And there was a similar process in the evolution of the Hebrew scriptures as well. There's a very broad consensus if you go to the history of the Hebrew scriptures that um, they grew through, you've got a bunch of books, and then more are added, and then they're edited into a single work. Then more are added, they're edited into a single work, and on and on until you've got the Hebrew canon. And if you study theology at degree level, you will find out about those stages, and they used to be called the JEDP stages, the JEDP edits. And this P edit represents a moment when all the familiar texts were edited in order to affirm and endorse the monarchy and the priesthood. So biblical scholars know this, that the stories were deliberately spun to endorse political structures that were around at that time, the priesthood and the monarchy. And as soon as any trainee pastor reads that, that ought to be a big red question mark over how they handle these stories for the rest of the rest of time. And unfortunately, insights like that, when you're doing a degree, they come and go very quickly and it can take a while before you get back to the wait a minute and begin thinking through the implications. And you realize there's a whole new lens you have to read these scriptures through. Wow. Well, thank you for that. Well, sometimes it might, it might take an injury with a, a frisbee, huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was very lucky. I was very lucky to have that ultimate frisbee injury and have have the time out. This is my new shipping crate, by the way, that we've just invested in. Oh, very uh, nice. That was, yeah. That's where I did my convalescence after the ultimate frisbee injury and just drilled down into these questions and followed the white rabbits where they wanted to lead me. Wow. Well, you know, in the book Scars of Eden, there's there's one of the um, the chapter headings. What happened to Paul? <laughs> and and Paul, when I read that, I somehow immediately superimposed the Apostle Paul over you. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> okay, here was this thing that happened on the road to Damascus, right? Was that? an ET experience for Paul, do you think? Or what happened there in your understanding? Oh, yeah, look, that is a really fascinating question because a lot of people, when they come to me for coaching, when they've been rattled by one of my books, but they know they're on a journey where they have to wrestle with the implications of it, one of the struggles that people have is they've had experiences of God so they know God is real, but they've attached those experiences to particular theology and particular doctrine, and now that doctrine has been rattled. So how do they then understand or reinterpret their experiences? And I say all that as a preface to 
cause experience because very often people will say, well, I believed all this doctrine because, they might use a phrase like this, because I had an encounter with the risen Jesus uh, and I had it in the Reformed Evangelical Presbyterian Church and so I realized they were on the right track and so I became a you know, Reformed Presbyterian Evangelical. That sort of story. If you then slow that story right down and say, tell me about your experience of the risen Jesus, they are not going to talk about they bumped into a human being. They are going to talk about, I was overwhelmed with a feeling of light and love and being loved total security and warmth and ease. So you then might reflect back and say, oh, okay, let me rephrase what you encountered. You had an encounter with love. You had an encounter with light. You had an encounter with union and non-separation. You had an encounter with ease. Yes, that's what you experienced. And they have had an experience of God but they've been trained to use other language to describe it, and they've anchored it to particular theologies or or institutions. So what did happen to Paul on the Damascus Road? He encountered light. He encountered the voice of Jesus. And I have absolutely no problem in believing it in those terms. I don't find any particular reason to say it was an ET encounter. It was a transpersonal encounter. It was a transformative encounter. But the way he reports it, he had a voice. And the voice said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Well, I'm I'm perfectly prepared to, to take that at face value. But it was also an experience of light that had a physical impact on him. And I find that particularly interesting because of my interest in Eastern Orthodox hesychasm and the hesychasts of the Eastern Orthodox tradition had a very strong belief that you could have an experiential connection with God, the cosmic source, and that you would often experience it as light and not a subjective experience, but something that would impact your materiality as well. And so I look at that story of Paul and I say, well, there's the first hesychast. There's the first person in that, that mystical tradition that the East has championed. Uh, and so I think there are these many implications that flow from an experience like that. And something I've certainly learned in my journeyings as I've researched for the Scars of Eden is that experiences like that are far more prevalent than we think they are. Religious groups often like to try and hijack these experiences and say, we the church have these encounters with God. You're experiencing something else and it's obviously inferior to what we've got. But no, Jesus said, and I believe him, the amazing power of the source is available to all. And uh, that was Paul's particular experience of that thing. So we're talking about two different experiences. This is with the, the source of all creation, not from some flesh and blood ET, <laughs> who is abducting someone for whatever, you know, purpose, uh, 
genetic retrieval or whatever they're doing. Um, very interesting. I've often and these these, these are all part of the human experience, aren't they? It's not yes. that one experience negates the other. Right. We are all experiencing a whole range of incredibly fascinating and amazing things. Mm -hmm. And in the Scars of Eden, I show that that these are all part of the human story. Right. And it's not not that the ET narrative shuts down the God narrative, or that the mm -hmm. God narrative shuts down the ET narrative. They are all part of the big picture. They are. And Paul, you know, that takes me to um, this whole idea of who we really are. We're just flesh and blood bodies, avatars, if you will, right? But then there's this larger part, the part that's really connected with that divine source. You know, the part that, that exists without this body. And, and certainly we can move about and travel, you know, as I've shared with you my experience. You know, when yes. um, my recently deceased husband visited me and showed me where he was, took me there. We have people who have the near-death experiences of, of, of leaving the body, you know, yes. and observing what's going on with their body in the operating room, if you will. Um, we even have the experiences that are, are happening with ayahuasca. I, I think even Plato had a, a psychoactive experience. Um, he did. And it, and it speaks so directly to who we really are, right? Time travel yes, without does. a suit, without a ship. <laughs> this is something that is, again, it, it's there in the roots of Christianity, and it kind of got forgotten. The Apostle Paul talks about an experience he had where he traveled into, well, I think we would say space, in modern language, outer space, to use modern language. Yeah. And he said he didn't know if he had traveled there physically or if just his consciousness had traveled. And so clearly in his thinking, it was possible for his consciousness to go somewhere separately to his body. And anyone who's had an experience, an out-of-body experience or a near-death experience, has no problem understanding Paul's question and his uncertainty about what he experienced, but he was perfectly willing to say he didn't know which it was. And Plato, to come back to him again, he, he taught that we are conscious beings before we are material beings. And he had this really cosmic way of talking about the hero's journey that we're all on, that our consciousness has to be an expression of the source consciousness. And then it individuates and then it becomes a, a material life where we wrestle with the great questions of can we do intelligence and consciousness as a society of individuals exercising free choice. And then at the end of this life, our consciousness moves on to something else. Now, when I read that in Plato, my jaw dropped because I realized that's exactly how John's gospel describes Jesus's soul's journey. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as one full of grace and truth. And then at the end of the Gospel, in John 17, Jesus is speaking to the source whom he addresses as Father. And he says, and now I'm returning to you, back to the glory we enjoyed before the foundation of the earth. Reading that alongside Plato, you realize Jesus is modeling for us 
our soul's journey, the journey of our consciousness. And just recently, I put up on the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube a, a little teaser, did a, a little clip about ghosts. And I did two stories, and one was of something that looked like a communication, the kind of experience you had, Tamara, with your husband, a visit after he had passed away. And then I had another story of place echo, which seems to be something else. And the stories that people shared in the comments are absolutely mind-blowing. Everybody's heard ghost stories here and there, but I would encourage you, if you can go to the Paul Wallace channel and find my ghost video, read the stories there. Yes. Because the detail in them is extraordinary. The emotional depth of them. I heard stories. I think the one that stayed with me uh, the most powerfully was uh, a father traveling with his daughter through a particular district. And he realized that his daughter, who was six years old, was having a conversation with someone he couldn't see in the back seat. And it turned out he was having a conversation with a, a Native American boy who had died 150 years before in a horrible massacre that had happened in that area they were driving through. She didn't know anything of that story. She was getting the information from this invisible boy. She later told her dad what he'd told her, and he'd watched her reacting to this conversation. It was, he could see the emotional reaction in his daughter the moment the invisible boy told her what happened to his family and it had begun as a playful conversation and then oh this is what happened to us he then went away and researched it and found everything his six-year-old daughter had said was true and so that was an experience of a human consciousness that was one could say trapped in that area because of trauma which is exactly what plato argued for he said that our purpose is to come and learn things in this material life and then take that learning back with us to the collective. But if we get too anchored to this material life, he said, through heavier emotions, that was his language, and that could be trauma like that little boy or fear or terror or anger or rage or resentment or unfulfilled ambition, all these things can make it much harder for us to move on after our material body expires and he believed that's what a ghost is and i've now heard enough stories to think plato was really onto something and it just renews the same kind of impulse that i had learned i suppose from orthodox christianity and that is while we're alive let's deal with our stuff <laughs> yes. let's not journey through life with too much resentment or too much anger or too much selfish ambition because it's not going to do you any good when it gets to the end of this material life and i've got a bigger framework now for that and thinking yeah let's sit to things a bit more lightly because when the time comes i want to move on to the next thing i i don't want to be hanging around here trying to process all my stuff right yes and, and that was the, the main crux of, of Yeshua, Jesus's teachings. It was about forgiveness and love. You know, when we're holding on to that resentment, onto the anger, the, all of those negative, heavy emotions that you, you quoted um, Plato yeah. and speaking about, um, it definitely manifests even in the physical. It manifests with lack in every aspect of our lives, whether it's relationship, it, uh, it manifests as dis-ease in the body. 
it manifests with all kinds of negative things. It's, it, it's almost as if that, that as above, so below is speaking directly to that, you know, that, that that above is that non-physical consciousness part, right? And then the physical plane has to outpicture what that non-physical part is playing out. It just has to. Amazing. Yes, that's right. Uh, and I, I think you're right to see that in Jesus's teaching. Yeah. There's a strand of teachings he gives where he uses this word Gehenna. Mm. And the church has translated that word as hell right. and then layered in all the traditional doctrines of, uh, you know, hellfire, eternal conscious torment and all the rest of it. Again, you, you ask, what does that word mean? The linguist's <laughs> yes. question. And it turns out that it's a picture of um, the rubbish tip yeah. outside Jerusalem. Trash and that heap. Jesus is, he is warning you against behaviors that will land you on the trash heap of life. He's warning you against behaviors that will ruin your life or yes. disintegrate your life. And so it, what's funny is that Plato talks about you process your stuff because it'll help you in the afterlife. Jesus actually isn't that focused on the afterlife when he gives these <laughs> right warnings, that the hell teaching. He's saying, this is going to ruin your life if you don't get this fixed. You know, lust can ruin your life. Anger, hatred, unforgiveness will ruin your life. And uh, he gives an illustration of a house built on sand that collapses. That's this life he's talking about. But we tend to read in the heaven and hell, two alternative destinies into all of Jesus's teachings. And we, we miss the fact he's actually trying to help us live a better life. Right here and right now. Right here, right now. Yeah. Well, you know, Paul, looking at, at some of this here that, uh, that perhaps we, we were genetically engineered, you know, to be uh, subservient, to want to please people who we think are above us, this whole cargo cult idea. Um, it seems that a lot of these awful behaviors that we perpetrate on one another uh, are mirroring uh, what had been done to us by these visitors, you know, who enslaved us, right? Yes. Who wanted absolutely. us to work with them, uh, basically to bring them food and to serve them. Uh, Our whole paradigms for leadership uh, and maybe even government, I think, are rooted in the time when we were governed by entities that were not human. Yes. And I think one of the reasons, if you think about how people, what people describe as strong leadership, often when somebody says, we've got a strong leader now, what they mean is they've got a leader who will force through what they want to do, no matter what other people think, no matter what the human collateral, we call that strong leadership if there's no empathy. And then if the leader comes along and says, we're not going to do anything until we've thought through all the implications, until we've heard from all the people who are going to be affected, until we've produced a solution that has the maximum buy-in. When we hear that, often we say, oh, there's a weak leader not willing to lead. And I think that's very strong leadership. If you can process a decision in that longer, more painful way so that you get a better outcome, I think that's strong leadership. But there's a bias to the first. I mean, I remember, I won't name names, but there was a British prime minister who came in a few years ago who essentially said, you're all going to have to work much harder. 
you'll be paid much less, you'll be treated worse, and you'll thank me for it. And half the population said, yes, a strong leader. <laughs> and I think that whole idea, that's what a strong leader looks like, absolutely goes back to the times when non-humans came, took over and said, you'll do what we say. And we lived in abject terror. And I actually think that's that, that awful worship song that I mentioned earlier. That's where all that thinking comes from, of we are unworthy servants. And even if I work my hardest, I would die an unworthy servant. That's where all that comes from and that's what we need to unravel and i think that it's not just in our concepts of leadership it's in our practice of leadership and it's in many of the geopolitical struggles that we're struggling right now i think many of the culture wars of the 21st century have their roots in different cultural interventions et interventions in the management of our ancestors and just as a quick for instance we are experiencing a global clash between two models of farming right now. There is a traditional model of farming that is organic, rotational, combination farming that works in harmony with nature, that combines crops to provide natural insecticides and all, that combines crops with animals to provide natural uh, fungicides and fertilization. There's all that that we've been doing for tens of thousands of years. And then there's another model of farming that says you take control, you genetically modify the crops, you genetically modify the animals, you subdue nature using petrochemicals, and then you can do it on an industrial scale. They're two different models. They're absolutely clashing. And in the scars of Eden, I argue that that uh, industrial model came to planet Earth from off-planet 10,000 years ago and landed in the Fertile Crescent, the place called Karakadag, and that the earlier, in harmony with nature, came tens of thousands of years ago, and we can learn about it from our Indigenous peoples, Native Americans, Aboriginal Australians, who've been practicing that model of farming for tens of thousands of years. So that's a, for instance, of culture clashes right now that have huge implications for how we live on the planet, that have their roots off planet. Yeah, I I completely agree with you as a as a tiny farmer myself. Um, I'm I'm definitely connecting with that whole idea and recognizing that um, you know as many eugenics want to say there are too many people on the planet. I don't know if you have been in an airplane and you look down on that ground. There is so much land available. I I think the oh, issue yes. is is how we are living on the land. We are all crowded into cities where there's pollution, you know, there's disease is rampant, definitely, because everyone's right on top of one another. If we could spread out, you know, and, and live in nature, I think then it could work. <laughs> I agree. Yes, the amount of empty land that's out there is mind-boggling. And you're right, you only have to get in an airplane and fly around the world to begin asking why we're living like this. Why do we feel that our population is unsustainable when there's so much planet <laughs> sitting there empty? And those discussions, again, they go right back to our oldest world mythologies and our ancestral narratives where those who colonized us are having debates about how many human 
beings there should be. But, you know, even as a micro farmer, Tamara, you've got that farming question right in front of you, haven't you? How are you going to farm your little plot? How many chemicals are you going to buy? Which crop are you going to get heritage seed or, or the other? Right, right. And, and I use no pesticides. I take cayenne pepper, garlic and soap. And that takes care of it. <laughs> nice. Takes care of it. Grow marigolds, you know, near tomatoes. You know, everybody takes care of one another. It's it's beautiful. Exactly. It really so your works. little vegetable patch is not going to be population <laughs> controlling you. <laughs> no. And I have so much to give away. I mean, I have so much food that that I could feed the neighborhood. It's it's amazing. Oh, and wonderful. Well, that's one stuff. of the reasons we've moved house, actually. I mentioned before we came on air, we've moved house. Yes. And it's precisely because we thought we really want to be growing much more of the food we eat just thinking in terms of food security as more of us are thinking about that in the light of this pandemic but also just in terms of health i want to eat the healthiest food i can get and i remember how my grandparents lived and they ate healthy they grew so much of their own food and because they did that it meant they didn't use money for absolutely everything needed. Yes. They use money for some stuff, for sure, but not for the fruit and vegetables. Yes. Not for the eggs. Yes. Consciously. I mean, the, the vibration and the frequency in touching the earth, touching your food, yes. being a part of it, connecting with it. You know, it's so important. It's so wonderful. You're going to raise your children with that. It's beautiful. Definitely. And I've been encouraging people to do barefoot gardening as well. Oh, yes. So they're really grounded. Most definitely. Well, Paul, this has been amazing. As, as you can see, we can go on for hours and hours. We, <laughs> we have so many things that we can speak about and, and, and think about how we can actually heal ourselves. You know, now that we recognize where a lot of the problems have come from, uh, we're, certainly we see uh, our origins and, uh, and who we really are on a deeper level uh, that we can move forward in that. And, and you know, Paul, I'm, I'm really anxious to, uh, to see what you write next. I'm just, uh, <laughs> I'm just itching for it. And I know that you will, will let us know. Um, well, well, yes, I'm, I'm so looking forward to the, the next work. I know that it's going to build on everything that you've brought forth this time. It's, I mean, this is awesome. Everyone, please go out and get Scars of Eden. If you haven't read Escaping from Eden, go there first. This is going to prepare you for this book because this opens wide, opens wide what we all need to know about ourselves, our world, and one another, and also what we need to do about what's next. <laughs> Paul, how can people connect with you? How can they learn more about what you are bringing? I know you've got several channels. I know you're on Gaia, please. <laughs> sure. Well, for the Scars of Eden, you can go to Amazon, Kindle, Barnes and Noble, Book Depository, wherever books are sold, you should find the Scars of Eden and Escaping from Eden. And I love getting into dialogue with people who read my books. And the best place to do that is either on the Fifth Kind TV on YouTube, or, or go to fifthkind.tv, go to the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube. And if you go to my website, which is paulanthonywallace.com, Anthony with an H, Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, paulanthonywallace.com, 
Then you can keep up with all that I'm doing. And I really enjoy getting into conversation with people because it's from these conversations that I'm led down new rabbit holes to do fresh research. And it's been very significant in the production of The Scars of Eden. And I'll just give you a hint as to where I'm going with the sequel. And it's to ask the question, what other knowledge was buried along with our ancestors' knowledge of ET contact? And to answer that question, I'm gonna be sitting at the feet of some particular groups. So some particular Native American traditions, some Aboriginal Australian elders, to the Philippines where the Scars of Eden has had a really strong response and a couple of other indigenous sources as well because it's in our folklore that this information survives. It never really goes away. It might not be in the school textbooks, it might not be on the news, but it always survives for another day to inform another generation. So that's, that's where that research is taking me. And that's happening purely because of the conversations happening on my channels, and the discoveries I'm making there that are taking me down fresh avenues. Paul, you are so personable and so amazing. You are a pastor. You are still a pastor. And you are one in the moving right direction, just moving people along right where we need to go. Much appreciation to you and all your work. And send my love to Ruth and the children. <laughs> Thank you, Ruth, for sharing him with us. <laughs> I'll do that. I'll pass that along. And thanks for having me on your show again. I love your show. We love uh, watching it and following what you're doing tomorrow. Fantastic. All right. Take good care and peace and blessings to everyone. We'll see you next time here on the Illuminations Media Network.